Okay, can everyone hear me? Yes. Dr. Walker, Dr. Sims, and Dr. Walter, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. This is Christy Balsfell speaking, and today is the 1st of August, 2014, and I'm welcoming um, three wonderful physicians and clinicians to talk to us today about immune function, immunity, and mitochondrial disease based on an eight-year study. I was so excited about this topic, and I just want to introduce you each briefly, but perhaps then you could just say hello and then we'll jump right into the topic. For anyone who's listening to this as a recording, there are slides to accompany this session and you can find those on our website under the heading Immune Function and Mitochondrial Disease. And you'll find the slides to go right along with today's discussion. So I'm so excited to welcome to the group today, um, Dr. Sims, I'll start with you. Dr. Sims has served for MitoAction's Medical Advisory um, Board for a number of years and is, you know, one of my favorite Mito doctors uh, for me as well as for many patients. And Dr. Sims is a pediatric neurologist at Mass General and has been involved in neurogenetic diseases and mitochondrial disease for a number of years. Right, Dr. Sims? You're right, Christy. Thanks for <laughs> giving a number to it. <laughs> and, uh, and Dr. Sims is a mentor for many other um, physicians in this field, and, and that we really appreciate, um, which leads me then to introduce Dr. Walter, who is MD-PhD and director of the Pediatric Immunodeficiency Program at Mass General for Children. Um, Dr. Walter's clinical care focus is on patients with immune deficiency, but I'm really excited that she's also following some of these patients with mitochondrial disease through the neurogenetic programs with Dr. Sims. So um, her research is very interesting, and I'm really excited to welcome her today. So welcome, Dr. Walter, to Thank you. Thank you. And then joining us um, is also Dr. Melissa Walker, who is in her um, residency program at Mass General at Hospital for Children, and she also has a clinical and research interest in treating primary mitochondrial disorders. And Dr. Walker spent some time at Columbia University before being uh, over in pediatrics at Mass General, and so we're really excited to have all three of you. So welcome to you also, Dr. Walker. So wonderful. So we're going to talk about immune function and mito, so we'll just jump right in and I'll hand it over to you guys unless there's anything else you want to say as you introduce yourself. Are we ready? Yes. We're ready. Okay, okay, go ahead. Great. Oh, thank you very much. Good afternoon. Um, I'm Melissa Walker. Um, we're all three very excited to have this opportunity to discuss um, the results of some work we did that was recently published in um, a journal, actually a journal for allergy and immunology. Um, this work, as you've already heard, um, is uh, titled Predisposition to Infection and SIRS, or Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome, in Primary Mitochondrial Disorders. And it relates to um, eight years of experience here at Mass General Hospital. Uh, this is the work of many people, uh, including Dr. Sims and Dr. Walker, Walter, who are on the call, of course, today as well. So um, that's our first slide. Uh, those listening along can come, come into the second slide. Uh, just for an overview of what we'll be discussing, uh, we'll start off with introductions. Uh, this audience, I think, will be very familiar with primary mitochondrial disorders, but we'll also talk a little bit about the immune system. 
and then we'll move on to discuss the work from the publication, starting off uh, by describing the group of patients that we follow here at Mass General that we included in the report, as well as discussing our experience <coughs> with these patients with infections, uh, the systemic immune response syndrome, which I'll discuss in a little more detail a little later, and immunodysfunction. When we're done with that, we'll wrap up by just talk, talking about the clinical implications, what we think we should do with this information, as well as what work still needs to be done. And there are a lot of questions that remain. Dr. Walker, let me just interrupt you one second. There's a little bit of background static. So Dr. Sims and Dr. Walter, would you mind dialing star six on your phone? Let's just mute everyone except those who are speaking and see if that helps. That did help, super, thank you. And then when it's your turn to speak, if you'll just do star six again, it'll unmute you. Okay, great, go ahead, Dr. Walker. Great, thank you. Um, so now we're gonna move on to slide three. So again, as I imagine most people in this audience are pretty, pretty familiar with, um, primary mitochondrials are a diverse group of multi-system diseases, meaning they affect multiple systems in the body, caused by mitochondrial dysfunction. Mitochondria are what we call organelles, meaning that they are small um, microscopic parts that are found inside cells, and they produce the energy that cells, as well as the body as a whole, needs to function properly. Uh, they do this by producing energy through something known as oxidative phosphorylation, as well as through processes of energy turnover, uh, such as fatty acid oxidation. Uh, what we are finding more and more is that they play other critical roles in cellular and body functions, including things such as programmed cell death, which is also known as apoptosis, as well as calcium regulation, among many others that we don't have the time, of course, to describe here today. So primary mitochondrial disorders can disrupt one, uh, one or several or all of these processes in the cell and may in turn cause a broad range of medical problems that we see in mito primary mitochondrial disorders. And as this group is likewise also aware, um, it's difficult to know exactly how many individuals are affected by primary mitochondrial disorders. But current estimates would place that number at about one in 4,000 individuals. Moving on to slide number four, the diagnosis of primary mitochondrial disorders. So how do we diagnose these diseases? Um, as many of you are already aware, this is a difficult process. It often requires multiple steps that your doctor can take to ascertain both the likelihood of a primary mitochondrial disorder as well as a potential cause. Now, I say many steps because there are, in fact, several potential complications inherent to making these diagnoses. Uh, the, um, in the first uh, set, there may be several, immune, uh, several organ systems involved, including the immune system, we think. Um, there's currently no definitive biomarker, no blood test that we can just draw and say that the mitochondrion isn't functioning properly. We currently don't know all the genes that may cause primary mitochondrial disorders. Additionally, uh, different people with the same genetic mutation can have very different symptoms, and that's what we call phenotypic variation. 
finally and very importantly, there are features inherent to the biology of mitochondria themselves that make this potentially very difficult, um, including the fact that mitochondria are inherited maternally, meaning that when an embryo is fertilized, all the mitochondria that will be in that embryo come from the egg cell given by the mother. Each individual mitochondrion within that egg cell can have different mutations within the mitochondrial DNA because mitochondria carry their own DNA. Every time a cell divides, you may have some mitochondria with a certain mutation in one cell, but a different number of those uh, similar mitochondria in another cell. And that's what we've tried to illustrate here in the, um, the drawing on the side. And that's something we term heteroplasmy. And finally, um, secondary mitochondrial dysfunction can mimic primary mitochondrial disorders, and it's often difficult to discern between the two. So moving on to slide five, what steps do we use to make the diagnosis of mitochondrial disorders? From a clinical perspective, different groups have um, created different sets of criteria based on signs and symptoms a patient may have, as well as at certain times um, laboratory testing as well. And they have tried, based on these criteria, to predict the probability or the likelihood that that person is affected by a primary mitochondrial disorder. For our study, we actually used the criteria published by Bernier and colleagues. A second step that might be taken would be genetic analysis. So as I mentioned on the last slide, there are two types of DNA that can cause, or mutations of which can cause primary mitochondrial disorders. The first type of DNA is the mitochondrial DNA. And as we mentioned before, that DNA is subject to maternal inheritance and our heteroplasmy. Nuclear DNA is probably the DNA you're more familiar with. It's the DNA that is inherited half from the mother and half from the father for every individual. Uh, and find, these tests are, in most cases, the most useful when a patient has a clinical history and symptoms that fit a known mitochondrial disorder or syndrome. Finally, um, a more complicated group that we're just going to call biochemical studies for the sake of simplicity here um, includes blood tests that can look at the blood for chemicals and metabolites that might give us some idea of how well mitochondria are functioning in the body, as well as tissue tests, which would be obtained from a biopsy, often from muscle. And those tests um, can include microscopic analysis to look at the shape and the number and the size of mitochondria, as well as stains that allow us to see specific proteins within the mitochondria and other techniques that allow us to actually look at how well those proteins are functioning. And finally, we have things we can term tissue test functions, uh, function that include physiology, imaging studies, and um, other modalities. And it's often through a combination of all of these different steps that your doctor will be able to decide what the likelihood of a mitochondrial disorder is. 
So um, I think moving on to the immune system, Dr. Walter was going to discuss these next few slides. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Dr. I unmuted my, my phone. So we will change gears for a couple of slides, and I would like to introduce you the immune system. This is going to be Immunology 101, very simple, and hopefully I can give you a taste of how diverse the immune system is. It is basically the major defense system against infections. No matter where the infection would come from, the immune system is there to take care of the pathogens or the bacteria, viruses, and fungi. And therefore, immune cells are found throughout in the entire body, not only in the bloodstream, but also in the skin, the gut, the lung, the muscles. And these immune cells are um, around the body. They try to migrate to the site where there is infection, and they are heavily dependent on energy to get to the place where they are needed. Besides the cells, there are other proteins and molecules that are generated by these cells that would also help to eliminate the, the invading organisms. The immune dysfunction uh, can cause multiple problems in patients who have an, a not well-working immune system. The first problem is infections, and that is well known for a long time. And some of these infections can be local, only affecting part of the body, the, the skin or the, the internal organs. But there are occasions when the infection is so overwhelming that there would be a systemic immune response called SIRS. And that way, the body, the entire body is already trying to work against the bacteria. And these are those dangerous moments when the patient needs to be in the hospital under the care of um, doctors who can do critical care. What is interesting is that immune deficiencies are now uh, very closely linked to other conditions that were, that were thought to be different from immune deficiencies, and these are autoimmunity, malignancy, and allergies. Patients can have other manifestations and infections when their immune system is not working, and there is more and more attention now in our field to these diseases and to understand their link to an underlying immunodeficiency. And on the right of this slide, you can see just a very nice illustration of the different type of cells that are in our body. The mast cells are mainly in, important in allergic reactions. Basophils are also innate cells that would help to fight off some bacterial infections. Eosinophils are the components of allergic diseases or fighting against parasites. And then B cells or T cells are very educated cells who, who would make response specifically to very specific organisms. And then we can move to slide seven, when I would actually discuss with you uh, the two major parts of the immune system. The first part is the innate immune system, which is actually the part of our body that we are born with, and it's not going to evolve. It's not going to get more educated in life, but they are there to help as a first-line uh, first action against the bacteria or the viruses. They are not very specific, so this part of the immune system can work against multiple different array of um, pathogens, and they do not require previous exposure. This system involves multiple different molecules and cells, and we listed them here. The molecules are mainly the part of the complement system, and the immune cells are phagocytes, cells that would, would engulf pathogens, macrophages, eosinophils, basophils, and innate T cells. And the advantage, again, of this system is that there is, they are ready to go at the time of the infection, and they don't need any previous exposure. They would be able to 
kill bacterial loaded cells and take care of them at the site. Of course, sometimes it's not enough to have this first line of, uh, of protection, and therefore a second part of the immune system developed, which we call adaptive immune system. These are mainly including T cells and B cells, and these cells are very important because they can keep, uh, make a response to specific bacteria or viruses, um, and before, because they are so specific, they would eliminate them with a higher, higher strength. So this is pathogen-specific. It can occur in response to previous infections, and the B cells would make antibodies, as you can see it on the slide, and the T cells would recognize antibodies with their receptor and then try to start to have them uh, either eliminated or uh, secluded. And with that, uh, I would like to move to slide eight and try to show you that actually the immune system and the mitochondria inside some of these cells are, are linked. And there are a couple of examples, and this is probably the tip of the iceberg, because research has been mainly focusing on the molecular effect of mitochondrial dysfunctions in the immune system, and we haven't really looked at the, broadly how the immune system is generally affected by the mitochondria. But just to give you a few examples, in case of the innate system, immunity against viruses would require the mitochondria because the mitochondria have certain receptors in, uh, that would link uh, the mitochondrial pathways to these receptors and eventually have the virus be recognized and killed through that cell. Also, bacterial immunity is heavily affected by some of the mitochondrial processes. For example, there are some, some products called reactive oxygen species. These are Product byproducts that would actually eliminate bacteria. They almost they are very similar to Clorox that we use in our laundry. We try to get rid of uh, bacteria uh, with our with uh, with Clorox, and this is exactly the same molecule that is created inside the cells. So uh, mitochondria is helping to generate this product. And in case of the adaptive immune system, T cells, memory T cells, are actually heavily dependent on the energy that mitochondrial oxidative metabolism is providing. And these T cells have to, have to be sustained in the body for a long time, and they have to be activated upon certain stimulations. There are also some specific T cell subtypes that uh, have distinct metabolic signatures, and we think that based on what they look like, what, what is their signature is like, they would have a um, different function in the body, and they are dependent, more or less dependent on energy metabolisms. And we actually listed a couple of very specific, uh, highly academic papers here in case you would like to get uh, more de definitive information in this. And going to uh, slide nine, which is uh, the last part of the introduction of the immune system and the mitochondria, we actually want to bring to your attention a few syndromes that are now actually directly linked to the mitochondria. Among them, uh, well, the first one is Bart's syndrome, and in this case there is a gene TAZ involved. Um, the phenotype is uh, mainly cardioskeletal myopathies and neutropenia, and based on the Bernier criteria that you heard about, these patients are likely affected as a mitochondrial disease. The other two diseases that I am more familiar with from my immunological studies is the first one is Omen syndrome. 
And Omen syndrome can be caused by multiple genetic defects, but among them, one of them is called a defect in adenylate kinase 2, which is an enzyme that is in the mitochondria or working with the mitochondria. And what we learned that this mitochondrial enzyme defect in that is actually can cause a severe immunodeficiency which is an inflammatory variant of severe combined immunodeficiency, and this has been published lately in 2013 by Lauren Henderson. What is interesting is that even if this enzyme is in the mitochondria and causes immunological disease, the phenotype of the disease would not fully overlap with the typical primary mitochondrial diseases, and therefore, based on the Bernier criteria classification, we think that these patients are likely affected by a primary mitochondrial disease. The third disease that we listed here is cartilage hair hypoplasia. Patients who suffer from this disease are generally very short, with short limbs, and have problems with, the, with their um, spine and other skeletal uh, bones. They have an, a specific defect in an, an actual molecule called mitochondrial RNA processing and ribonuclease. This RMRP, uh, because it's not working well, it is not only causing the mitochondria to be dysfunctional, but there are specific um, predisposition to infections. The patients can have a very variable form of immunodeficiency with T-cell dysfunction, and there is a very typical feature of dwarfism, but it doesn't always occur in all of the patients. And curiously, this disease is considered to be a mitochondrial disease, at least a possible mitochondrial disease based on the Bernier classification criteria. So now I'm going to uh, give back the, the phone to Dr. Walker to review further our experience at MGH. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so getting back to um, our review, um, I, first of all, I would like to say that this project very much grew out of the observations of um, patients and families of patients and providers who have helped to take care of those patients um, here at MGH. Uh, this was something that I think a lot of people were um, eager to see done. So if you go on to slide, from slide 10 to slide 11, um, we just have here for you uh, the picture of the cover that the, of the journal that we published this um, article in. And here we have listed all the individuals who helped in making this possible. And uh, going on to slide 12, we can start talking about the group of patients that we actually looked at. So in the um, registry here at MGH uh, that Dr. Sim started, there are more than 250 individuals who might have mitochondrial disorders. We looked through all of those patients and we decided to search first for patients who, according to the Bernier criteria, would have either a probable or definite classification as um, primary mitochondrial disorder, meaning that Per, per those published set of symptoms um, and criteria, these individuals were very likely to be affected by a primary mitochondrial disorder. We then further uh, excluded individuals um, who didn't yet have any laboratory testing to support that diagnosis. So specifically, the people we looked for were ones who met clinical classification, who had either a genetic test that said that similarly a primary mitochondrial disorder is very likely in this case, or a biochemical test that um, also supported the diagnosis. So um, from that greater than 250 
group, we got to 106 patients who met all of those criteria. Then we looked through their records, and there were nine patients who actually didn't attend enough, weren't, weren't followed for enough appointments at MGH to really um, make any sort of uh, rigorous analysis of their course. So because they weren't really following with us, we left them out of the study. And in the end, we had 97 patients, 60 of them were women, 37 were men. They ranged in age from newborn to 68 years, and they were all followed for um, about an average of eight and a half years while they were at MGH. So um, moving on to the next slide, slide 13, um, you, of course, would be interested, I'm sure, to know what kind of genetic findings the patients we had um, have. So 32 out of those 97 patients had some form of genetic studies that supported their mitochondrial diagnosis. Um, the most common, and the, we can focus just on three, I think, here from this long list, the most common gene that people had mutations in was actually the polymerase gamma gene. Um, uh, one of those individuals had um, SANDO, or sensory ataxia, neuropathy, dysarthria, and ophthalmoplegia. One of those individuals had mitochondrial recessive ataxia syndrome, or MIROS. And uh, three others had, uh, or had, excuse me, five others had non-identified non syndromes. The other gene that we found most frequently was MELOS, um, or the syndrome, I apologize, and that gene is, of course, a mitochondrial encoded tRNA gene. We had seven individuals in our group who were affected with MELOS. And then we had five individuals who had the most common genetic mutation for MRF. Um, MRF is myoclonic epilepsy with ragged red fibers. And all of those individuals had the most common mutation for that syndrome. Um, so as you can see, as we mentioned before, it really is the individuals most often who have these clinically identifiable syndromes who are most likely to arrive at a genetic diagnosis. Moving on to the next slide, uh, slide number 14, we have the group that um, had supporting biochemical studies. So this is 75 individuals, so as you can tell, there is some overlap. We had seven patients out of the 97 who had both a gene that was found um, that might be involved and support the diagnosis, as well as some biochemical studies that supported the diagnosis. Um, so you can see that actually the majority of our group, um, the diagnosis was supported by biochemical studies as opposed to genetic ones. And the vast majority of this group with biochemical studies um, were patients who had defects in oxidative phosphorylation. The other way you might have heard this called is um, de uh, deficiencies in electron transport chain. So most of these individuals actually don't have um, classically clinically described syndromes, um, but they did have this supportive data from their biochemical testing and did meet the criteria that we were using for a likely primary mitochondrial disorder. Dr. Walker? Yes. Could you just give a quick example just to put it in context of what a biochemical test would be so that yes. you have an idea of what you're talking about? That. So for most of, most of these patients um, with these, for example, these oxidative phosphorylation defects, 
most of these patients underwent a muscle biopsy. And that muscle biopsy, which generally we send to, the, um, uh, to Case Western at their Center for Inherited um, Disorders of Energy Metabolism, um, they're able to test the muscle tissue and look for um, problems with the function of the electron transport chain. So these individuals would often have diagnoses such as um, EPC1 or 2 deficiency because that part of the electron transport chain didn't seem to be working as well as the controls or the, what we would consider to be normal from these tissue tests. Perfect. Thank you. Sometimes people get confused that a blood test like a lactic acid is a biochemical. Oh, yes. Well, in, I think, you know, you can kind of group those very broadly together, but in most cases, specifically, this is from the biopsy. Perfect. Sorry to interrupt. Thank no, you. No, thank you. So moving on to the next slide, slide 15, um, the question we asked was, do, do these individuals from this very large heterogeneous, meaning very diverse group of patients with primary mitochondrial disorders show um, as a group an increased likelihood of infection, either recurrent infection, meaning happening again and again, or serious infection, which um, includes the systemic immune response syndrome, as Dr. Walter was talking about. So that bridges nicely into perhaps one of the more important issues um, that we raise in this study, which is what actually constitutes a serious or recurrent infection? Um, this is a difficult question. We don't know um, as physicians or scientists uh, what is the number any in given person should have of infections in any given amount of time. So it's a little bit difficult to pinpoint what would be unusual, even though I think most people would be able to kind of say it themselves. Um, what we looked for when we looked through these records were infections that required hospitalization. We looked for infections that required some sort of surgical intervention. Um, tympanoplasty, which is putting tubes through the ears to drain ear infections. Um, as well as actually having to surgically drain an infection. That often happens on the skin if there's a boil or something similar, um, as well as any other surgical procedure we saw detailed in the record that was targeted at um, fighting the infection. We looked for the systemic immune response criteria. Now, these are a very well-documented, published set of criteria, both for children and for adults, that try to quantify how severe an infection is, um, and they relate to vital signs that the, pa uh, that the patient shows while they're sick, as well as lab studies, um, which will just be uh, studies from blood that were drawn while the patient was ill and can show signs of the body trying to fight the infection. So those are nicely laid out in a stepwise fashion of severity the least severe being infection and then progressing from something called sepsis, which is a little more severe, to uh, severe sepsis, refractory septic shock, um, and the most severe being something called multi-organ dysfunction syndrome. So we looked for all of those in the cases where our patients were hospitalized. And then perhaps equally important were what we didn't consider to be um, uh, an infection that we would include in this study. And this is not because these infections aren't serious, but because we wouldn't, we wouldn't be sure that these infections were related to 
any anything other than the mitochondrial disorder itself. Um, so urinary tract infections pose a bit of a problem here. Um, many individuals who have a primary mitochondrial disorder have something called neurogenic bladder, which makes it difficult to appropriately empty the bladder or urinate um, uh, in a timely fashion. And when you can't clear the urine from your bladder normally, you can get increased rates of infection just because you're not able to keep the, the urine moving as it should be. So for that reason, because we thought that maybe the, the neurogenic bladder or not clearing the urine was, might actually be the cause of infections, we didn't count individuals who only had urinary tract infections. Second, um, as many people are probably already aware, um, respiratory insufficiency or trouble with breathing is a common problem um, in patients with primary mitochondrial disorders who have myopathy or problems with the muscle because it requires muscles to breathe. Um, that was a more difficult question to get at, and what we decided to do there was to compare um, the rate of pneumonia, which is infections of the lungs, in our patients to a study put out by another group, um, a group actually from New Jersey, who studied the rate of respiratory infections in patients who had muscle problems of all different kinds. Actually, none of their patients had mitochondrial disorders. Many of them had Duchenne's uh, or other various muscle problems. And we thought that that might be a good comparison because if it was just a matter of not being able to clear the secretions out of your lungs to cough and do these things that normally help us keep our lungs healthy, um, and, that, and if you couldn't do that because your muscles were weak, then you would be only getting infections of the lungs at the same rate or as, as frequently as somebody else who couldn't do that for a different reason. Finally, um, it, we saw a lot of infections of the blood in our patients, but um, a lot of our patients, for many different reasons, had something called a central venous line, which is actually a tube that goes into a large vein in the body, um, often in the, just under the clavicle or the near the shoulder. Um, any time you have any piece of material that is, not at, that is not native to your body, in your body, you increase a risk of infection, and that, it does not matter who you are or what your medical history is. So that was also an important problem. We wanted to make sure that our patients weren't just having more bloodstream infections because they had a central venous line. So fortunately there, also, someone else has done a study, um, this is actually out of the Netherlands, looking at all pa pediatric patients, um, theirs range from newborns to um, much older um, teenage years, who had central venous lines. Uh, for any given reason, and those children had any number of medical problems. Many were, just, were healthy aside from an infection. So we compared and said that if our patients had infections more often than these patients who had the same central venous line but don't have primary mitochondrial disorders, then maybe there's something different about what's happening with our patients. So. Um, moving on to slide 17, uh, what did we find? So here um, we've made a graph to illustrate um, our results. We did find that 40%, um, which was actually 
um, in our case, 40 patients out of the 97, had some sort of serious or recurrent infection at some point in the eight and a half years that we followed them. Um, this broke down, or is broken down here by color, by type of infection. So the group represented in purple had um, bacterial infections and also had viral infections and also had fungal or um, most commonly yeast or fungi. Um, so they had all three types of infection. The group represented in green had yeast and bacterial infections. Red was bacterial and viral. And a large group actually had only bacterial infections, and that's represented there in blue. So we, found, we thought that was pretty striking. Um, but perhaps even more surprising than that for us was that um, 12 of our patients, which was about 10%, had um, one or more episode of that systemic immune response syndrome. Um, and this is interesting because uh, if you look for the numbers that the CDC publishes every year for the entire country um, here in the United States, only 0.0017%, meaning less than two in a thousand individuals will um, have SIRS um, in any given year. So there's a big difference um, in that number, though clearly th these numbers are somewhat different. Moving on to slide 18. Can I just put it into perspective, Missy, for oh, a yes, second? Please, please. So basically, I would I would just to make it for the sake of um, simplicity, I would say that there is a 10%, 1%, like 200-fold increase in yes. the mitochondrial population compared to the national average, which is a very high increase, 200-fold increase in the frequency of these infections. Yeah, so obviously um, a pretty pretty high number. number. Yeah. Yep. Or 54. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I think the next question a lot of people might ask would be um, what what um, ex what pathogens or what bugs did we see that our patients were having to fight? So on slide 18, we've summarized the most common types of infection that our patients um, had had to fight. The first one. Um, is something you might have heard of in popular media called Staphylococcus aureus. It's a very common type of bacteria. It lives normally on our skin and in many different places. Um, most commonly, these individuals had something called methicillin-sensitive Staph aureus, and that simply means that we have more antibiotics to fight it than um, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus or MRSA. Um, though we did see several individuals who had difficulty with MRSA. Um, both, in both cases, uh, the most common type of infection with um, Staph aureus was an infection of the blood. Uh, the next most common is Candida albicans, and that's a type of yeast or a fungus. And again, what we saw was that um, our patients experienced a blood infection with the yeast. Third, um, is something called Clostridium difficile, which is also a type of bacteria. Um, Clostridium difficile is a bacteria that can grow in the gut. Um, often when a patient is being treated with other antibiotics, kind of the good bacteria in the gut get killed off by the antibiotics, and the, the bad bacteria, in this case the Clostridium difficile, is allowed to grow um, out of 
out of proportion to what it normally would, and that can cause colitis or an infection of the gut. Um, and a couple of our patients had colitis uh, with, with sepsis, meaning a pretty severe infection. And going down the list, we had more bacteria that are commonly found in the human body but can, be, can cause infections um, pretty frequently in, in most people. Um, but we, again, see them more frequently than we would expect um, by chance in our group. Um, and then finally, at the bottom, you see um, respiratory syncytial virus, um, or RSV, was an important type of infection in our group. This is a virus that infects um, the lungs um, and the airways. Um, it's most commonly seen in small children. We actually saw it in small children, but also in older individuals in our group, um, adults. Um, not listed here because they were not the most common. Um, it were also both influenza A and influenza B um, as far as viruses go. So moving on to um, our next slide, Dr. Yol uh, Dr. Yolen Walter will be talking about um, the immune phenotypes. And I would like to reflect on, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Yeah, I would like to reflect on slide 18 just in the general terms before I move on the immunological phenotype. You can see that, as it has been shown on previous figures, that there is a broad selection of different organisms listed here. Some of them are bacteria, some of them are fungi, and there are viruses. And as I introduced you the immune system, it was obvious that different parts of the immune system take care of these different organisms. So the fact that we have the broad selection of um, bacteria, viruses, and fungi tells me that probably not only one single part of the immune system will be affected, but more part of the immune system together, and therefore there could be a, a very wide variety of infections. And uh, the other thing I wanted to emphasize in this slide is that some of these bacteria and viruses are probably going to be acquired because the patients end up getting hospitalized multiple times, getting procedures, and uh, seeing medical facilities. And uh, these organisms can be acquired because of these visits. Um, so I really highly encourage our patients to be very careful with hospitalizations and um, hygiene in the hospitals. So going to slide 19, we only looked at a fraction of the patients who were actually in this cohort, and the reason is that there was um, an index case, which we will discuss later on, and that in the index case um, just got us very interested in this population, and slowly we tried to see these patients uh, one by one and figure out if they have an, any kind of immune deficiency that we can define with our measures. And we did find nine patients who had some sort of an immunodeficiency that was clearly defined by the clinical test that we can do in our clinic. The most frequent one on the left in the blue circle is hypogammaglobulinemia, which, is, which only means that um, the antibodies, specifically IgG, the most common and most important antibody, is low. And uh, this is an, an important finding because this is actually something that we can correct. So finding this um, abnormalities were very helpful since we could actually contribute to the treatment of the patient. In the other circles, you are finding other variants of immune diseases. I would like to emphasize the pink circle below vaccine titers, which is the second most common immuno immunological abnormality we see in our populations. These patients have a good antibody level in total, but when you look at 
responses to vaccinations, they tend to have difficulty responding with proper either amount of vaccine response or the, the quality of the response is poor. And uh, the patients will be prone for infections because they just don't make uh, good enough antibodies. And then the other two circle is giving you more specific information for a handful of patients who had combination of low antibodies and low T-cells, which means that both the B-cells and the T-cells were affected in these patients. So you can see just by looking at these nine patients how, how diverse the immune uh, problem has been in these patients and how much it's not one type of disease but probably multiple type of immune diseases that they will face in this population. And then going to, uh, to the slide 20, I actually wanted to emphasize you the treatment that we could give to these patients. Besides protecting them from infections with antibiotics, those who have low antibodies, we call them immunoglobulins, we can replace it. And um, five affected patients actually was treated with replacement. The replacement was under the skin. We call it subcutaneous route. And these patients actually had decreased frequency and severity of infections. And not only they had decreased frequency and severity of infections, but they also had less of the development regression that we can see with this specific group of mitochondrial patients. And overall, I really had a good sense of improved quality of life as I was talking to the parents and the other medical providers following these patients. What I want to emphasize that in mitochondrial patients, we really advocate for the subcutaneous immunoglobulin replacement in, in the contrast to the intravenous one that would uh, be going directly to the veins monthly. And the reason is that we find it that in any patients, the subcutaneous version is better tolerated. They have less side effects, including headaches and chills. And they tend to be more compatible with the autonomic dysfunction which we mean by the blood pressure changes, unusual heart rates, flushing. So this is more compatible with the autonomic dysfunction that is frequently seen in the mitochondrial population. So now I would like to move to slide 21 and give the phone back to Melissa Walker to discuss the study limitations. Okay. So, um, importantly, um, this is not a definitive study in many ways, um, meaning that we did look at these, these cases after they had happened in particular. And that's something we call retrospective design um, in medical and scientific language. Um, the problem with looking at something after it's happened is that we are only looking at um, the group where we know something has happened. So that can lead to something called selection bias. There's always um, an issue with information bias, um, in particular that we are relying on the information that was collected before, before we even knew what we would be looking for. Um, and in this case, um, that's the medical record, and we are relying on what has been recorded in the medical record at Massachusetts General Hospital. Um, and in some cases, we can't be certain that we have not missed um, something that was not recorded in the record or was incorrectly recorded in the record. Um, so one thing that is also um, uh, obvious, I think, from looking at the group is it is a diverse group. There are many different disorders that are represented. And most of those disorders, as I mentioned, are oxidative phosphorylation defects. Um, 
whether that might be presenting a bias in our results, meaning that there's something that we might not have seen if the group was more evenly distributed among different types of diagnoses. We can't, we can't be certain that that's not the case. Um, but that said, um, this might actually reflect what we nat naturally see, that there are certain types of mitochondrials that occur more often. Um, we just don't know. And finally, as, as Dr. Walter said, um, we would have really ideally liked to have had um, testing for immunodeficiency in every patient that we had in this, that we looked at in this study. But unfortunately, um, that wasn't available. So we have a very incomplete data set um, in that regard. Um, regarding clinical implications, which I think is probably the most um, important thing we can talk about today, um, what we can say here is that we think, based on this data, that um, children or adults who have primary mitochondrial disorders may in fact benefit from some testing to see how their immune system is working. Um, if they are, do get this testing, it's important that it be done at a time when they do not actively have infection because when you have an infection, your immune system will look very different than when you don't. It's also important that um, they be uh, screened for autoimmune diseases like Dr. Walter was talking about, allergy and atopy and other forms of autoimmune uh, dysfunction. We would also say that based on this information, if there are patients out there who have problems with multiple systems in their body, including immune dysfunction, that it might be worthwhile for the doctors taking care of them to consider the diagnosis of a primary mitochondrial disorder. Um, we might even um, additionally say that providers who are taking care of patients who have known primary mitochondrial disorders should keep a very high index of suspicion, as we would say, or always be alert uh, for the possibility of infection or severe infection in these individuals. Um, and for individuals who have primary mitochondrial disorders and are, and are having infection, um, we think that it's important that these individuals have ag aggressive hydration meaning fluids, when they are ill, and sometimes that is just by drinking, sometimes that has to be intravenous, um, but the doctor involved will, of course, be able to best determine that. And that, that doctor should also be thinking about possibly prophylactic antibiotics or, as Dr. Walter was saying, um, in, uh, immunoglobulin therapy. Of course, that should also be done in the setting of um, consultation with all the appropriate types of specialists, including immunologists like Dr. Walter. Wonderful. Uh, Dr. Walter or Dr. Sims, any additional comments before we move on? Dr. Sims? Can you hear me? Dr. Walker? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes, I, uh, okay. I'm here. Can you okay. hear me? Yeah, now we can hear you. Oh, Kathy. great, great. I just wanted to emphasize that although this study clearly focused on those that we could define as having or 
or thought we could define as having primary mitochondrial disorder. I don't think that that means that we in any way have really addressed the issue of whether those that may have secondary mitochondrial dysfunction for whatever reason uh, may not also be at risk for infection. It's just given the diagnostic tools that we have available now, it was um, it seemed much more straightforward to try to focus on the a cohort that we could better define. Great. And, um, Dr. Walter, any additional feedback from you that you'd like to comment before we do questions? I think Missy very nicely summarized the the enigma that we are facing, whether when we see patients whether they really need uh, extensive workups or not. Uh, when you have a patient with primary mitochondrial disorder, you try to tackle down all of the different challenges uh, in multiple systems, and bringing in immunology may complicate the picture. In some cases, may not be useful. But I agree that uh, we should have a high index of suspicion for patients who have um, who have significantly more infection, who just tend to not to respond to conventional treatments in this population, and have that group of patients refer to immunology and uh, looked into. Um, the nice part is that we actually can offer therapies that can make their life easier and better, and we would not cure the, the primary problem, the mitochondrial disease, but we can have, we can hopefully improve quality of life and, um, and let, them, let the other specialists use you know, other measures to, to also incre increase their quality of life. So I think we can bring something to the, to the picture. It's gonna be an ancillary treatment, but it could be very useful. Um, I, this is Christy. I wanted to chime in on a couple things and say I've, I've anecdotally had a number of patients, especially adult patients, report that IgG has helped them um, really change their quality of life significantly. And so I'm quite intrigued that you recommended uh, sub-Q IgG because that seems far less invasive for the patient, which would, would in my mind, um, improve the rationale and, and the, the benefit, you know, decision-making mm -hmm. process for those patients. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and I think that that is referencing that. Is that referenced in the paper? Because for patients who I think, um, think this might help them, this would be a really important conversation to have with their infectious disease immunology team mm -hmm. to realize that that could be a really viable option. Mm -hmm. We did not specifically reference um, or uh, make a statement about the use of subcutaneous immunoglobulin in this paper, but we are actually finishing a review on um, on most of these diseases and the connection to the immune system. So we could actually uh, probably put a section on this into that review and give our um, insight into this matter. And the nice part of the subcutaneous immunoglobulin administration that currently it's once a week, but there are products in the pipeline who are coming out, these are coming out soon who are actually once a month under the skin in infusions, which could give even more flexibility to the patient. So giving it once a month like the IV, but under the skin with less side effects and hopefully more tolerability. And um, before we open for more questions, I wanted to go back and just ask you to clarify so, so that you know, we always think about the practical application of this type of research. And for a patient who is in a revolving door situation with the hospital because of infection, and there are many mito patients, kids and adults, who are like that, um, would you apply those criteria you mentioned very early in the slides as to, 
you know, what considers a person who has a serious or recurrent infection status to, you know, what, what would I guess be your um, clinical threat?